Hello, my name is Jason Hahn, and welcome to the Daily Nebraskans Campus Conversations series. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Julia Schleck, Associate Professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, about her new book, Dirty Knowledge, Academic Freedom in the Age of Neoliberalism, an entry in the University of Nebraska Press's provocation series, edited by Dr. Marco Abel and Dr. Roland Begshoff. Dr. Schleck's scholarship concerns a wide range of fields in English, but also important today is her previous role as president of the Nebraska Conference and UNL chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Dirty Knowledge is a political treatise about higher education, the function of academic freedom, and the Academy's future. Dr. Schleck, welcome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this invitation. Wonderful. So uh, I'm going to try and trace a, a path through the book. Um, so to start out, the book very much concerns this kind of history of academic freedom as an idea and the transformations it was subject to throughout the 20th century. So can you explain a little bit about how this, this progression worked? Sure. So academic freedom, as it's conceived in the United States, is something that uh, starts to be articulated in the early decades of the 20th century. And it's it's done um, perhaps most clearly and forcefully by some of the uh, faculty and philosophers who go on to be founding members of the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, um, which uh, also gets started in, in this era. And it's, uh, it, it is pushing back against the way in which professors in the period were uh, summarily fired um, by uh, governing boards of universities um, for their uh, their scholarship. Um, and this began with some very famous cases that made news across the United States, um, often by professors in economics, um, which would anger some of the trustees and other donors to the universities who would then demand their firing. Um, so for example, uh, Mrs. Stanford of Stanford University um, it decided that one of the professors there had articulated a position um, against immigration, um, which she considered to be central to her family's wealth um, that was derived from uh, largely from railroads and was the labor force there was supplied heavily by immigration from the Far East. And so um, she said, get rid of this person. And uh, the administration there decided to do so and it caused a, a great uproar. Similarly, there was someone at uh, the Wharton School at uh, you know, University of Pennsylvania um, who spoke very forcefully against child labor and in favor of child labor laws. Um, and the um, trustees of UPenn um, were very much against this um, since they benefited from the labor of children in the factories and felt that uh, these kinds of ideas should not be sponsored by a school of which they were trustees. And so they, they sought to fire this man and did. Um, and so some of it, the, the confluence of these cases and others started uh, some of the American intellectuals saying like, well, what, what is the value of American education? Shouldn't the ideas generated by our intellectuals and professionals within universities um, be free from the external influence of society's religious, political, and economic elites? Um, shouldn't, isn't it a benefit to society to have a group of people who can think freely, who can imagine without restraints, who can generate for our society the kinds of innovations and depth of understanding of our past and uh, ability to 
innovate for our future um, in a way that would promote our society. Like, you know, shouldn't we be protecting and fostering these people as a social good, as a public good? So, and this is often what's called like the public good or the common good understanding of U.S. higher education. And the way that we protected those people um, in, in, in a way that would empower them to think these thoughts and to write them down in coherent ways and publish them or teach them in classrooms was to give them a kind of job security. And uh, that became what we know today as tenure. Um, and that gets kind of institutionalized across the first few decades of the 20th century, and then becomes a, a kind of gold standard for faculty across the United States. So academic freedom is like a freedom of mind that's protected by special job protections that uh, only judges um, have other than faculty because they're independent judgments were also valued in the same way. Um, and so, but it's all done based on this kind of social contract, right? That the work we done was, we do was perceived as uh, a public good or done for the common good. And that that justified these special protections. My book asks if all those special protections are being eroded to the point where they are nearly gone, you know, is this an environment in which academic freedom, that freedom of mind to do this work can really still exist? And doesn't, if, if we're allowing this to happen, doesn't that point to a question that we as a society need to grapple with? It, do we really not care about this anymore because we're letting it go? Um, and if the answer is yes, then we need to be clear about that. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the, the main drivers of the book. So. Uh, as you know, the academic freedom is first formed as a particular kind of material relationship, as you call it in the book, a particular employment relationship. So how does it turn from this particular kind of employment relationship to the right that we consider it today? And, and what are the consequences of that transformation? Yeah, so I think um, there are debates today uh, about kind of how people would define academic freedom. And in, in general, you know, when you, when you ask people, what is it <laughs> precisely, then I, I think everyone kind of stops and goes, huh, you know, and the, the easiest answer they come up with is, is that it's a, a right that academics have that is kind of um, similar to, it's a kind of free speech for professors, right, you know, and so they make this convenient analogy because most of what we do is thought of as a form of speech. Um, you know, it's publishing, it's working in classrooms. Um, and so I, so that analogy is very convenient and familiar, but it's, it's very misleading. Um, and, and I think that referring to it as a right um, rather than this kind of set of employment protections that were put in place to generate a specific kind of knowledge within the academy, um, that it, it first of all um, allows for the erosion of the material support for that work within the academy. So to give you like concrete example here, um, that if academic freedom is just like a right that somehow we all have, um, then, you know, how is it that if, or if it's violated, you know, like what are the, what are the protections against that? And if, if there aren't there or they aren't perceived to be there by the faculty, then, you know, like how, how is it that we can have the intellectual freedom to, 
pursue ideas that we suspect someone might object to, right? And this this actually is um, was a case that was made very clear to us by Regent Pullen's recent um, attempt in the Board of Regents to uh, discourage UNL faculty and, and others within the university system from teaching anything about race or what he, he, he labels critical race theory. And so the question then for the faculty who aren't tenured um, within our system becomes, well, if I, if I do teach this, if I think it's you know, if, it, if I teach something that I think is entirely mainstream in my field, but it gets labeled critical race theory and it gets, um, you know, picked up somehow, then, you know, like, am I going to be attacked and what protections do I have for that? Um, and if the answer is none, really, um, then, you know, like, what are those faculty going to do? Some of them might be, I'm going to job in the best way that I know how. Um, I'm going to, you know, choose to pursue my discipline as I know it should be taught, as all my colleagues think it should be taught. Um, and, and I'm just gonna brave out the consequences, but that's asking a lot for people. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the, the difficulty with making it a kind of airy right um, that doesn't have any kind of concrete material protections behind it. Uh, there's a really fascinating bit of argumentation you do in, uh, I want to say, the, the second chapter, where you relate um, the problem of academic freedom as a right to uh, First Amendment jurisprudence and First Amendment rights. Can you explain that connection a little bit? Uh, sure. So it, part of the problem is, uh, in, in making this analogy too, right, as you say, is that First Amendment rights um, are designed to protect all utterances, regardless of quality, like anything that is put out there has equal status under the law, as the saying goes. You know, it doesn't matter what the content of the speech is, that's irrelevant, you have a right to say it, um, you know, with some kind of narrow exceptions um, based on public safety and such. Um, but academic freedom, like the, the utterances that are protected by academic freedom are put out there almost explicitly to be judged as good or bad. Like that is what we do within the academy is we, we put our ideas out there and others peer review them and say, yes, this is excellent, you know, and I want to pass it on and I want to teach this. This is right. This is good. This is best way to approach this particular subject or topic or people say no, you know, like that's, I actually disagree with this. I think it's wrong for these reasons. I think it was shoddy work. Um, and so, you know, that's something that within the academy, we are explicitly looking to uh, assess the quality of the statements. And that's, you know, like the flip side of academic freedom, that it's not just a protection from kind of non-experts outside the academy deciding that something they like or they don't like something and uh, seeking to shut it down by, by, by firing the professor, um, but also that it's a responsibility for those of us within the academy to exercise quality control, to say like, well, yes, you know, like you, you can publish and teach anything you want, but then we're all going to review it and we're going to say like, no, actually, you know, like that's, that is not, uh, you know, like accepted within the field or it's not accepted within the field anymore. Um, and so, you know, the way that ideas get judged within the academy is, is, is a a real difference between utterances that are protected by academic freedom and peer reviewed and utterances that are protected by the First Amendment. And of course, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, the uh, First Amendment speech is uh, you're protected from government persecution for it. Um, but, 
you know, within, you know, that doesn't stop people from exercising that First Amendment right and being fired for their employer by their employers. Like that happens all the time now. Um, someone finds out that you put something on Facebook and they're like, we don't want this out there. We don't want our business being represented by employees who say these things. Um, and you could get fired and that's perfectly legal. And in, you know, in the case of academic freedom, the whole point is to stop you from being fired um, because we're looking to foster the widest possible exposition of ideas. Um, and you know, the fact that some of those might upset or offend or challenge some people or just bore some people to death, like <laughs> does not, you know, like doesn't mean that they shouldn't be uttered. So one like specific to, to try and bring it from the abstract to a very concrete example, one of the cases that you talk about in the book is that of uh, Professor Courtney Lawton. Sure. So um, some of your listeners may, may know about this, um, but it's been long enough now um, that uh, many of them may not. Um, in 2017, uh, there was uh, someone who was in one of our PhD programs, um, Courtney Lawton, and uh, she was completing a PhD within the English department. Uh, and she was also, as is common for many of the PhD students within the English department teaching as well. Um, and so she was working on a, a, a lecturer contract, which is usually a one-year contract. We have many lecturers um, at UNL. Um, not all of them are grad students by any, any means. It's a particular employment contract. Um, and she uh, took issue with a, a particular um, a booth that was seeking to recruit uh, signatures to start a campus chapter of the uh, conservative student organization Turning Point USA. And uh, she uh, decided to protest this organization, check to make sure it wasn't a registered student organization, um, and it wasn't. And so she made a sign and went back and walked along saying, you know, like, I object to this organization in very crude language. Um, and uh, this part of this got captured on video and got blown up nationally um, in the media. And uh, this then, you know, came back to the Nebraska press and a lot of people said, we don't want this person teaching, they should be fired. Uh, and so it, 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 it was a, a year long kind of um, uproar uh, over whether Dr. Lawton would be permitted to teach that fall or that spring. She had a, you know, an annual contract or whether she would be rehired the following year. Um, and as it turns out, um, the UNL chose to uh, not put her in the, the classroom through that time and to publicly announce they wouldn't be rehiring her. And so much of this debate was framed as free speech. Um, and so there was a lot of discussions about whether she had the right to do that, whether she was impeding the um, undergraduate who was recruiting for Turning Point, whether her, her rights to recruit were you know, also somehow um, being impeded by, by protest. And so it became a kind of dueling discussion over you know, whose free speech rights took precedent and who had them and who didn't and whose were being restricted. Um, and it, throughout that time, I felt like in many ways, the point in this incident, which was just the one we had here in Nebraska, there are iterations of this all over the United States, um, in part because Turning Points often seeks to provoke those. It's kind of one of their activities as a group. Um, and so the question became, uh, it, 
for me at least, not one of a dueling rights, but like one of employment protections. Like, so, you know, like, does she as a lecturer, you know, like, is she able to be fired um, for her viewpoints or not? Um, and for me, I think it's just more about the economics of this. If she were, you know, a fully tenured professor, then it would be a more complicated discussion. She would probably not be fired, but there might, you know, there'd be all kind of, there might be other disciplinary things that were done if the administration considered it inappropriate behavior. And there's plenty of those mechanisms in place for them to use. But because it was a one-year contract, they could just say, well, you know, we're not, we're never going to hire her again. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it, it's over. And we have a lot of faculty who work on those kinds of contracts, or we have professors of practice who work on three to five-year contracts. And so, you know, like what, I think many of, certainly many of the people working on Courtney Lawton's contract at UNL and that, uh, you know, others working on slightly longer but still temporary contracts learned from that incident was that, you know, like you can't do or say anything that might upset people. Like if, if you have, you know, views that those in society might find objectionable, whether you're on the right or the left, you know, then if you uh, articulate those in a sufficiently public way that it causes kind of a firestorm, you're likely to, likely to be fired or just not rehired. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're teaching something that might upset people, then maybe you ought to consider teaching it a little differently or taking, you know, just altering the way that it gets presented to students so that they get the like more boring version or the less controversial version or, you know, like, all of those kinds of decisions now all the non-tenured line faculty at UNL might consider making. Um, and, you know, the, I mentioned those two kinds of non-tenured line contracts, but there are a ton of them. Um, there's a whole bunch of, whole collection of different titles that people can have that um, basically just mean, you know, they're not protected by tenure. So that the, uh, the kind of flexible labor force uh, of contingent faculty, all of that's related to another bit of groundwork that we ought to set up here, the, uh, the development of an academic capitalism, as you term it, and its relation to uh, neoliberal capitalism. So can you uh, explain that connection a bit? Yeah, so I should say that academic capitalism isn't my term. Well, um, of course, yeah. drawing that on a, a book that has that title um, by uh, uh, Sheila Slaughter and Gary Rhodes. Um, and they're, uh, they're sociologists. So they're, they're looking at, the university, you know, as, you know, its position in society, its structure, just like kind of any other institution, and they're tracking its changes and how it functions. Um, and, you know, they kind of do a, um, a very dispassionate survey of all those changes, but they're not the only ones that have brought them up. And um, there's been quite a lot of books by uh, professors and, and others um, who are protesting the shift in the university in its um, underlying philosophy from that public good or common good model that we talked about before to this academic capitalist model in which uh, everything in the university is run in a way that kind of mimics a capitalist market rather than um, a, a service that is done um, it, for the community at large. Um, so uh, to give you an example, um, uh, curriculum. So uh, this is something that we've hit in my department all the time where we're like, okay, 
you know, like we have as professionals in our area of expertise, certain ideas about what students need to learn um, if they want to learn our discipline. And, you know, those change as the discipline changes over time and we make adjustments to the curriculum. So these things evolve, you know, evolve. Um, but in the past, ideally, uh, they evolved according to our notions of how the field has changed so that we're keeping students kind of up to date on the, the, the most kind of uh, advanced methods, the newest texts, you know, all and, and keeping in place kind of what we think is critical groundwork for the, the major or minor, anyone taking a, a class in, in English. Now, if the department budget is tied to how many students take our classes, then we have to shift and say, well, um, we need to figure out what the students want or might want or might be attracted to or you know, might be convinced to take um, and because we need as many of them as possible in order to keep like paying department salaries, being able to make photocopies, keeping the lights on, you know, those kinds of things. And so, um, so then we start saying like, well, do we really need to require this class that, you know, is very important, we all agree, but, you know, is not so popular because it, you know, is a little boring or deals with old literature, which everyone finds scary for some reason. Um, and, uh, or, you know, maybe we can offer something new and jazzy. And so like, we start thinking of students more as customers that we can entice. Um, and the mechanism behind all that, of course, is that our budget gets tied to student credit hours and student credit hour production. And that also gets tied to how we handle uh, the contracts of the teachers that we have. So if um, they, uh, we teach small classes where we can spend a lot of time individually with students, you know, like really thinking about the writing, helping them individually to develop those skills in reading and writing, um, then that means that for a single professor's salary, we're only getting 20 students and their associates and their three credit, you know, so you only get 60 credit hours for that one faculty member. But if we do a lecture, you know, well, it may not be as good pedagogy. We think classes should be small in English, you know, like, and maybe you'll only get a few words of feedback on your essay. Um, but, you know, if that one person teaches 90 students, well, then that one faculty member's salary generated 180 student credit hours for us. So you see how it starts affecting the quality of the education by tying the, the money of the department to, uh, you know, things that the budget to student credit hours in this case. And that's like one linkage. And there's a lot of those now within the institution, which is increasingly being managed according to kind of the latest standards in, um, in the business world, uh, which is heavily dominated by a kind of neoliberal capitalism. So the university has become this kind of managed space as it's sometimes called or corporatist space um, in which the techniques of governing the institution are no longer the traditional ones from shared governance some decades past but they're more like the business world um, and that has a concrete effect on the education that students receive the uh, the the sort of like crisis of of the distribution of funding right that not, that not only applies within a college right to how they apportion classes to how classes work um but it also applies between colleges within the university system and you you see this like 
uh, this gradual deprivileging of of English studies of the humanities, right? And you see this sort of uh, apportion to very technical schools, like like business, for example. Um, that that's a correct sort of observation to make, correct? Yes, um, and that's partially happening for you know reasons that uh, students who are increasingly facing large burdens of student debt to get through college say what will make me the most money and business major sounds more promising to them than you know a humanities major of some kind and you know they don't do the research on that which you know is slightly different um, than than what you know one might expect um, but you know like they make that calculation they go for those majors so that's partially you know like one reason that that happens another is donors um, so you'll be unsurprised to hear that, you know, alumni or um, people who care about education and are philanthropists who are uh, businessmen um, usually have larger bequests to make than former English majors, <laughs> and, you know, who decide that they really love, um, you know, the English department. And um, while that's not always the case, um, it does mean that, you know, the the uh, people who have money in our society tend to give money to the areas of universities that they think will be um, most useful in their own area of business. And so, you know, engineering gets a huge bequest um, or the business school builds an entirely new business school and you go and you look at the kind of old falling down buildings in, you know, the pure sciences or something, you know, desperately need upkeep, you know, like they really need renovation. Um, and uh, then you go look at, you know, the brand new business school building and you're like, well, you know, like which one looks more attractive, um, which one says you're going to make more money and be able to pay off those loans. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a spiral um, in or, you know, or a circle in some way in which, uh, you know, the areas that, you know, as, as one of my authors put it, you know, uh, uh, generate money, study money, or in some way relate to money, attract money, and um, they get stronger and that kind of spirals upwards for them and vice versa. So there is ways that, yeah, it affects the internal organization of universities as well. So uh, let's just like assume the, like uh, the standpoint or the, the sort of mindset then of like a, a neoliberal capitalist in this instance they might say, well, why is it necessarily a bad thing that students are getting what they want, right? Why is that sort of a problematic? Uh, what, what would you have to say to that? Um, I would say we should have that debate explicitly because it gets to the question of the function of education. So, you know, are we, you know, it, it, in the education we're providing, is it um, similar to a buffet in which, you know, student taste kind of drives um, what they learn that, you know, it becomes a service that we provide to students based on their preferences? Um, is that the service that we provide to society? Um, in which case, you know, like, I'm not sure that we need to be doing the research that we're doing or bringing that into the curriculum. Um, we should instead be kind of conducting extensive research on what students really want, um, you know, which of course changes as tastes change very quickly. Um, and we should be constantly generating new course material based on kind of the, the latest interests of the student body. Um, if we're serving a different function for society, um, in providing an education that has been deemed best by those who spent their entire lives working in the area um, and know the most about it, then, you know, like that 
that's the kind of older conception of what education is doing is that it's respecting the, the expertise of those who have you know spent the most time and have the most hours um, who, who literally dedicated their lives to kind of thinking through these questions and issues and material and you know in their best judgment present you know what they think someone needs to learn if they're going to um, learn their particular subject and that you know that serves a different social function um so you know this is <laughs> i feel like you know a question that would be better to tackle head on um than to just kind of let creep in um and that's more or less what we're doing right now you know is the university here just to kind of um you know, one one theory of this is that the university is really only here for kind of vocational purposes. We're here for a kind of high end job training. Um, and if, you know, we're not explicitly training you to take on a very particular job in our field um, or job in our society, then, uh, you know, it, it's then it shouldn't be taught. Then it's pointless. Um, and you know, and to some degree, we're sliding into that too, um, which is why, you know, uh, humanities departments are disappearing, why, you know, partially, surely why they're cutting philosophy at UNK, I hear. Um, so, you know, like that's, that is um, one of the competing ideas about the function of education. So one more bit of groundwork before we get to talk about the, the, the praxis. Um, uh, one thing that the book develops, and we sort of touched on this, is academic freedom as a negative liberty, as a freedom from something as opposed to a kind of positive liberty. So how does that relate both sort of genealogically through the development of the idea and also sort of materially uh, to the force of neoliberalism in this case? Okay, so that's a kind of complicated question. <laughs> um, so in general, you know, like academic freedom is thought more of it's usually conceived more as a freedom from, right? A freedom from outside interference in, you know, the, the research and teaching that is being conducted by the experts within the university to the best of their professional judgment. Um, as I noted, you know, like it also comes with responsibilities um, in terms of, you know, judging, uh, you know, peer reviewing um, of keeping the quality control going on, which could be seen as a freedom to self-govern. Um, and, you know, those two things are kind of flip side. If you're not going to have the bosses govern, then you need to have peer governance. Um, and, you know, we'll get to more, I'm sure, like the, the end of uh, uh, the book and some of the suggestions that I'm making, but I'm actually, you know, like, I think there needs to be a freedom to, pursue the kinds of questions and research that aren't necessarily going to support the contemporary kind of uh, elites or, um, you know, those who give money, make money or money, you know, on our campus. I think there should be a place for um, knowledge that actually pushes in another direction or is irrelevant um, to those agendas. Um, and so, you know, I think I think we need a place for for research that is crazy and has no practical purpose that is uh, perhaps intensely boring to the people of today, but turns out to be critical later on that is, um, you know, critical of things that we hold dear that, that you know, like, um, that, that attacks our sacred cows, right? You know, like, I, I think that that kind of research is what's being lost and that that's, uh, 
an important social function that higher education can and should play and and has in the the past and that we're losing that and so you know i i actually think that we need the freedom to um, pursue lines of research that don't align with contemporary neoliberal values um, one example of this sort of like crazy uh, research that you talk about was the work of medievalists on this one sort of mathematical problem and how that eventually had like really critical effects in computer science. Uh, can you can you explain that real quick? Yeah, I think you're you're conflating uh, two. Oh, I'm of sorry. That sorry. The people <laughs> that you're referring to are a little later. Um, they're the more late late 18th, early 19th century. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, these these things are called quaternions, um, and um, this is something that you know is based on research done by a historian of science that pointed out you know there was this guy you know in <laughs> at his time, you know derived this. Uh, particular mathematical theory and everyone thought it was really cool for about 10 years and then it kind of became very unpopular um, and and just disappeared for you know 100 years and then in the 80s suddenly became like absolutely critical for visual graphics in computer design and so it became kind of a you know one of the, the uh, founding kind of understood conceptions that is worked that is worked into this and I'm I'm you know babbling in a really unknowledgeable way because this is not my area at all. Um, I found the article fascinating and as an excellent example of the way that um, older knowledge can be that at the time was rejected or that falls out of favor is still there for us in the archives um, and becomes absolutely critical um, later on at some moment in a way that could not possibly have been imagined, you know, in the 19th century. Um, you know, they're, they're not envisioning this being useful for computer graphics, right? Um, and there are those kinds of examples from across human history. Uh, and it seems worth remembering that focusing only on stuff that is useful for us today, and especially only on things that are useful economically for us today, means that we are dramatically kind of shrinking the possibility for uh, having a, a bank of ideas that might be critical for us later on, you know, like either in develop some, developing something spectacular and new, like, you know, like computers with graphical interfaces, which we now take for granted, um, or, uh, you know, for helping us combat some, you know, massive extinction event or something, right? <laughs> you know, like they're, they, they, they might be critical in a, in a very real way um, to, to human survival, um, to, to fight another pandemic or, uh, or just, you know, become the most wonderful, playful thing ever right that that amuses all of us and takes us out of the direness of our moment right i mean like the the richness of the the work that's generated is something that we should value and at the moment what we're offering the world in higher education is becoming more and more impoverished so uh one more piece of groundwork um because there's so much to to you know talk about in this um we've talked about the university to the students to the contingent faculty to, to all these things um but how does the university as academic capitalism sort of present itself within the community which it belongs to um what's the kind of connection there yeah so it, you know the most obvious connection here is just the uh the way in which um 
the university kind of makes its case, first of all, for funding through its economic value to the community, right? When the legislature considers the budget and, you know, some of the most kind of persuasive arguments or the ones that are always at the forefront are that, you know, the university helps generate economic growth in the state of Nebraska, that it provides jobs, um, that kind of thing. But um, if you're, you know, like outside of that context, you know, if you're just a citizen, you know, here in this, and this is actually like not just here, um, this is across the United States. So, you know, the as those legislatures vote fewer and fewer of our kind of collective dollars to higher education, in part because they have fewer to, to dole out in general, you know, lowering taxes over time has diminished the amount of money that we have to spend on resources like higher education. Um, then uh, that means that in order to keep going, universities have had to find money elsewhere. They have driven up tuition um, is one of the most notable things, right? You know, like education used to be, you know, like not free, but really close. Um, it's still free in some uh, European countries and, and elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that we've transferred the money from something that we consider to be a common and public good that everyone should you know have access to a higher education in our society and so we as a society devote our tax dollars to supporting the the university that will provide that education instead we've said well you know if now it's something that is on the individual student and family it's like well do you want to invest in your future do you want to take out the loans do you want to kind of work the the second and third jobs you know like do you is this something that you as an individual you know wish to take on um, and we encourage you to do so because we all see the value of a public education but now it's become your responsibility to pay for it rather than something that society provides as a, a common good to all and so that's the kind of shift to neoliberal and just, you know, academic capitalism in general, that we have shifted to uh, focusing on the individual and on your education as a form of self-investment, um, you know, in your economic future, rather than thinking of it as like, we want an educated populace in our country. And so we think that's important enough to pay for as a society. Um, and so that's the most kind of uh, biggest, you know, ticket item. But then let's say, you know, the university, like to do some of this research is very complicated. It's very, you know, it uses technology that's very expensive sometimes. Um, and uh, so instead they, you know, they don't have the money for it from their budget. So they partner with a big corporation who provides the money. But then the corporation says like, yeah, okay, you know, we're interested in this topic too, but we want you to approach it in a particular way um, because that's what we're interested in and we're putting up the money for this. Um, and so, you know, maybe say, okay, you know, and maybe in the end, like, you know, it's a, a pharmaceutical company that develops a life-saving drug, and that's wonderful, and, you know, like, that's clearly a benefit to society, but then the corporation, of course, is like, well, this is, you know, patented, so no one else can produce it, so that we get all of the money from that, you know, we get our investment back, and um, we, you know, like, get a profit on top of that, and so, you know, if you're a citizen, you're like, okay, well, this was developed at a public university that, you know, some of my tax dollars are still going to, and then I'm paying tuition for my son or daughter to go to. And, you know, like, this is a wonderful life-saving medicine, but now I also have to, like, pay for it on top of that, and it's very expensive. Um, and so, you know, like, then that's another way in which, 
you know, like we have shifted from considering the work done at universities as public good that ought to be publicly available to the populace, regardless of your economic circumstances, to something that's your individual responsibility to access. You manage your money well enough that you should be able to access the university, to access the, the drugs or discoveries or whatever that, you know, are, are generated through public-private things or, what, or donors or what have you. Um, and so that's another way in which you know, this shift from the public good model to the academic capitalist model shifts money from you know, the, our collective wealth to onto individuals to manage themselves. Uh, you have a new political vision for how academic freedom ought to be conceived. Uh, can you please uh, describe it for me? So I've partially, you know, of course, been talking a little bit about this or, or hinting the, the direction that I think it should go. And, you know, partially, I think we need to uh, reconceptualize the idea of the good that the university offers um, society, that part of the reason that the book is called Dirty Knowledge as its title is to say, you know, that we need to stop assuming that everything done at the university is somehow done like in a, a monastery on a deserted island somewhere entirely disconnected from, uh, from society. You know, that's, that's perhaps the, the old kind of ivory tower understanding of the way it works. You know, it's not, right? You know, like it's done by people who live in society who have, you know, like commitments and interests and beliefs and both professional and personal families and, you know, like and all of those considerations and our material circumstances kind of come to bear on the fields we choose to study, on the projects we choose to undertake, on how we conduct that research, on whether and how it gets disseminated, on how we teach it to students. So all of those things, you know, are, are, are show how are, are essentially political and not in like the partisan Democratic Republican kind of way. They just, they reflect decisions we make about what we think is the good, the best way forward. Um, and we all commit to that and our work reflects that. And so we need as a society to kind of stop thinking that university research is somehow apolitical, neutral, you know, like it, it has always been shot through with the politics of society, you know, like both in the, in the people that are actually enacting it and also in how we have chosen to fund this work, you know? And so uh, it, when we were doing kind of full public funding, um, then, you know, the, the kinds of projects and research that were undertaken were often geared more toward kind of abstract, uh, you know, uh, public debates or goods. Um, if it's more privately funded, it will be geared towards more private concerns, um, and uh, and and it will perhaps benefit uh, fewer people or those people specifically, and maybe others, but only in a collateral way. So, you know, we need to kind of think. We need, we need first of all to, to recognize that one of the things that the university offers society is a forum for these debates. Like we are not apart from society, we are deeply engaged with it and we are arguing with each other viciously like over all, all of the things that society argues about. But we do it in this really slow, long form kind of way. 
you know, this is not a tweet, this is a 400 page book kind of arguing, you know, like making our case, you know, and those kinds of arguments provide a different kind of wealth, a different of argument of evidence, you know, they generate the, the kind of information and evidence and arguments that is that kind of seed bank that we might need in the future, you know, when we were talking about like the quaternions or whatever, um, or, you know, looking back at all the previous instantiations of plague and human existence has provided us with some sense of, you know, where we might be going forward in the pandemic. Um, so there, you know, we need to, to invest in the people that are doing these long form public debates and recognize that they're partisan. They're taking their own side, you know, whatever that is. And it's not gonna align as, as I mentioned in some kind of clear way with our electoral politics, um, but it is gonna be kind of, you know, shot through with the, the concerns of the age. And it's gonna generate, you know, like all of this possibility for the future. But we need to have like really strong contenders for that. And that means the freedom to pursue research that doesn't necessarily align with today's economic kind of capitalist interests, right? It's gotta be, it's gotta, it's gotta value those things that are crazy, that are useless, that are boring, that are critical of where we are today. Um, in addition, to the incredibly useful stuff that we do, you know, like the, I'm not, I don't want to eliminate that entirely. Clearly, that's important, and that's one of the valuable things that we offer. But it can't be the only thing we offer. Um, and so, you know, I'm in, you know, my my short version of, uh, you know, what I I think the kind of new definition of academic freedom needs to be is kind of an, an intellectual freedom from this myth of disinterested purity that, you know, what we're doing is somehow cut off from the world and abstract and objective. Um, and uh, the material freedom, the financial support, in other words, you know, to generate the greatest possible range of human knowledge in the academy, both, both now and moving forward. And it's paying attention to those material conditions that I think is the critical point here and that's often missed when we think of academic freedom as some kind of abstract right and not as not as the embeddedness of knowledge production in a particular place and time and the material conditions of trying to do that work. I personally think it would be wonderful if all university systems happened on Lindisfarne Island in uh, England, but um, <laughs> maybe that's just me. So the the one one concern, and this is probably more like a, I don't know, like maybe a, a Voltaire concern almost, um, is that if you center what the university does and in, in the public, right, and very much have a kind of relationship between that, then you'd like extend the stupidity of the masses or all that, that kind of like anti-democratic sentiment, you know, how would you respond to a, to a claim like that? I think that, um, you know, for those who spend their lives studying something and then find it dismissed and contradicted, it's tempting for them to do the same and to do it along snobbish lines. Um, and I think we desperately need to resist that, that, you know, we need, you know, to really believe in democracy, you know, in, in, and that includes, you know, everyone out there and including those, you know, who are, are choosing not to 
uh, to uh, engage in a, a college education. I, I believe in the worth of that education and, and I would hope that it would be available to everyone, but I recognize the material conditions that mean that some, for some people that's not possible. Um, and so those people see things that we can't see because they are living different lives and their rights need, you know, like their, their needs need to be represented in, uh, in our politics as well. And they're often not. Uh, and so, you know, in, in having that debate over the public good, it actually has to be like the full public. And, you know, and that would be one of the, the reasons we can't just kind of go back to previous ideas about the, the public good or the common good is that, you know, in the past, that mainly meant the people who had the, the time and the education and the confidence and uh, the respect of society to speak in those forums, which pretty much eliminated, you know, women and non-white people and anyone, you know, early on, you know, anyone who wasn't Protestant, right? I mean, like all of society's prejudices got uh, encapsulated in how narrowly that public and its good was conceived. And so, you know, if we want to kind of re-democratize, then part of, you know, if it we want to go back to this idea that the university and it's, it is a, a public good. It's got to be the, the full public. Um, and that also means kind of, you know, looking at people who didn't have the money to make it through to a college education, given the way that we're constructed right now and, and thinking about how our, our work can benefit them too. I'm interested in your notes on unions. You, you very much appreciate unions. You see them as a very, very good thing, uh, but you also see some limits to what they can achieve uh, uh, in the academic capitalist system. So can you explain those those limits a bit? Yeah, so uh, I'll say first of all that, you know, I am very much in, in favor of uh, academic unions right now um, because of the stuff that, they provide to some of these changes as we're kind of pushing, you know, into ever more into a kind of academic capitalist vein, you know, in part because like neoliberalism really emphasizes individualism and entrepreneurialism and uh, unions really emphasize collective action, solidarity, you know, seeing, you know, the, the things that are stopping all of us from doing our best work and, you know, prioritizing kind of putting funds towards those things. So, you know, both philosophically and just practically, you know, it can, uh, it can provide a, a shift in power on campuses to, to say, no, let's consider some other kinds of values um, or, you know, like let's negotiate um, over how we're going to allocate our funds. Um, and, you know, and of course that's what unions do is they negotiate. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that they're absolutely critical um, at this particular junction. Um, on the other hand, um, they're, you know, like, they deal with the economic side of things. And, you know, as we've been discussing, academic freedom it goes well beyond that in the sense that, you know, it's this kind of contract with society about the role of higher ed in the United States and what we want it to do. And, you know, that's that's something that we as a society need to work out. So one of the ways that you conceive of your new academic freedom is through this uh, this seed bank model uh, of, uh, of the university knowledge. Um, and, and you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but can you explain it sort of in a very like concrete way? 
Sure. So in a way, I think I've been explaining it more as a concrete way and less as a metaphor, right? Like the, the <laughs> seed bank idea, um, I think is useful because I, I hope we're familiar with those, right? You know, they are, you know, there are these locations where, you know, seeds from you know, millions of different plants um, on our planet are, are stored um, for the possibility that, you know, like they might uh, disappear, that, that they become extinct either slowly or all at once, and that we will need them again someday, um, and that they will be critical for, for our survival. Uh, you know, and we use plants for food, pharmaceuticals, all kinds of things, right? You know, and so just having a place where those are stored and available for us for future use against conditions that we can't currently imagine. Um, and that's the way I'm conceiving of like university libraries, for example, you know, which preserve the long, long debates that uh, academics engage in over the central issues of our society across time. And so, you know, when, when we do research, you know, certainly when I do research, one of the things that I'm looking at is everything that's been written before on this topic and thinking about it and bringing some of it forward again and, you know, leaving some of it in obscurity or, um, you know, uh, assessing and deciding this is useful now. This wasn't useful before, but actually I think it's brilliant. We need to talk about it again. And, you know, those moments going forward, both big and small, are what I'm, I'm I think are one of the critical functions of the university is that it provides this seed bank, this kind of, you know, bank of uh, extraordinary information of all kinds um, that at some moment may suddenly become critical. And that if we just destroy all that or, you know, let it go or only save part of it or whatever, then we lose that potentiality. Um, for whatever we might have needed it in the future. So in some ways, it's, it's a refusal to envision what that future is, but it's a preparation for any possible contingency. I have this, this quotation here from Dr. Benjamin Noyes uh, from the University of Chichester, and I tried to find where it was from. I couldn't. Uh, in the face of the slow cancellation of the future, contemporary theory, and this is about theory, but applies very much to your argumentation as well, has often responded by stressing the utopian possibilities of inventing the future or turning to a fundamental past ontological rift or wounding. The crisis of the future, I wish to suggest, is in fact a crisis of the imagination of the present. In contrast to the invention of the future or the turn to the past, I argue we need to de-invent the future and return to the present as a fraught and fragmentary site of struggle. So, so putting this quote in, in orbit with your text, what is the present site of struggle? Like what can people or uh, academics do sort of tomorrow that starts to affect the, the change that they want to see on the world? Like what, what are, what, how does struggle take place contemporary? contemporarily? Well, I would say, you know, as, as an academic, I definitely want like discussions and debates to happen, you know, I mean, providing forums to think about this um, deliberately. You know, part of the problems in the academy have come from tenure line faculty being okay with the number of tenure line faculty positions being consistently eroded um, until you know, the, a lot of the workload has been divided up in ways that um, burden both tenure and uh, non-tenured faculty. And so to some degree, you know, we need to take some responsibility for what's happened to the faculty collectively and start thinking about work done on campus as 
the work done on campus, right? You know, by all of us, the teaching work, the research work, um, we tend to kind of divide out into special interest groups based on, you know, the the contract under which we're working, and that undermines the the mission or the project that we are all supposed to be engaged in here. So, you know, I I would ask colleagues to to give some serious thought to what we are doing as a whole in the university um, as a faculty. Um, and how best we can guarantee the the quality of that and the which includes the quality of life of all of our colleagues. Um, and so, you know, within, you know, the professoriate, that's something that that I think should be done. And I, I think um, very much that, you know, we should be talking about uh, unionization. Uh, so, you know, those are kind of two immediate fronts for professors. For students, um, you know, you're kind of in a bind um, in that I understand, you know, like why why someone would look at their uh, their loans and be like, you know, like I'm going to have to make a lot of money, you know, when I get out of the university to be able to survive this, you know, and so to some degree, I would I would say that it's worth um, rather than kind of giving into this logic. Um, to ask, you know, are there ways in which, you know, I can pile on political pressure to do debt forgiveness? You know, student loans are now like on the table in the United States as something that might be forgiven under certain circumstances. Um, and, and they easily could be. And so, and this is, you know, it is well in line with um, the values, for example, of, um, of uh, uh, the, many of the students who are Catholics here, you know, like there's a long tradition in the Catholic Church of Jubilee, um, of debt forgiveness, and you know, like that's something you could call for. Uh, that you know, you should ask the question about um, why, uh, you know, that the cost of that is being transferred on to students rather than the government when you know the the state government is uh, considering how higher education is funded, um, you know, you should go speak to that and how it affects what you can do. It limits your choices, it limits your class, class choices, major choices, what, you know, how you envision your lives after you leave, you know, like things, careers that you might have considered under some circumstances now seem like, well, you know, naive perhaps, or your parents will kill you if you do that, or you know, whatever. Like, irresponsible financially, um, and so you know, like, fight back against that at the places where these decisions are being made. And you know, and I, and and I want to stress that you know, like, it needs to be framed not as um, a choice between higher ed and K-12 or higher ed and, you know, health and human services or, you know, any of the other things that, you know, the, the government currently funds, you know, it, it needs to be a question of how is it that we're the wealthiest country of the world that, you know, we have people making billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And then, you know, like many of us are still like scrapping to pay our bills. So, you know, like, and, and how are we allocating that money in society and specifically within our state? You know, there are ways to talk about what our values are and how those are instantiated in the way that we handle our resources as a society. And so go to the legislature, look into, there's all kinds of debt relief movements online, look into that, I would say, push back against that you know, raise awareness of it as an issue um, and, you know, then make your own decisions about how you're going to handle that in terms of your own life, your own major, that kind of thing. And also to be aware that uh, some of the faculty that are teaching your classes are 
well-paid middle-class jobs um, that get sporadic, you know, support uh, to be on leave, to get relief from some of the some of the the tasks that they have to do in order to do others better, to develop new classes, um, that kind of thing. And some of them are people that are teaching too many classes to be able to do any one of them well and are having to do a second job because they're not getting paid enough um, or they're on food stamps or something like that. You know, like it, literally some of your teachers are working at the poverty level and, you know, like, and that inequality is something that, you know, faculty and administrators need to take more seriously, but it's also something that, you know, you as, as students should, can, can be aware of that there's an inequity in the, those who are providing you with your education and to be more cognizant, um, of, of, of those difficulties as we try to be, um, to, <laughs> I, I hope, um, to, to, to those of you that some of whom are, you know, on scholarship and able to do all kinds of activities and have, you know, spend a lot of time in your reading and your classwork. And some of you who are working one, two or three jobs to try to pay your tuition and support at home or, you know, whatever it is that's, that's your current challenge. Um, and so to, you know, be, be generous, show some solidarity um, for all of us um, who are, are trying to do our best here and to, to honor the, the work that we're all about in the university, which is to value learning um, as, as a critical thing for ourselves and our, our society overall. If I'm able to ask a, a very selfish question, uh, a lot of the argumentation in your book includes a, a wide range of philosophical influences, right? You have uh, in the same chapter, you might mention Wittgenstein and Deleuze uh, within like five or 10 pages of each other. Is this kind of crossing of analytic continental, was it important to you during your argumentation? Or did you not really see like a, a divide and you just wanted to like use whatever you found useful? Like I'm kind of curious uh, informing your argumentation in that sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was more the latter in the sense that, um, you know, the uh, I, I'm certainly more familiar and comfortable uh, within the continental tradition, but, uh, you know, it's, it's worth noting that Wittgenstein, it, it, while he certainly kind of put out some works um, that are very clearly kind of in the analytic tradition, you know, he had a, a varied output and the Philosophical Investigations, which is the book that I'm drawing from there, might actually be read as participating more in the continental tradition. So, you know, to some degree, I'm not sure that the um, contrast exists as, as clearly as, as you're making it there. Um, but um, beyond the philosophical point, um, I think it's it might be useful or your, your readers, listeners uh, <laughs> might be interested in, uh, in learning that this book actually didn't come out of reading. Um, it didn't come out of my, my studies per se. Um, it came out of activism. And it was, you know, after years of being uh, an activist on campus trying to argue for a, a more diverse and humane space um, on campus uh, that protected the things that I thought were worth saving about the university. Um, and, you know, doing that largely through the AUP, but I also served on the faculty senate and of course, you know, participate in a, in a lot of different ways in, in university life. Um, that it was, it was through that work, in fact, that I was asked to write this book. Um, and when I thought about it, I, I said, you know, yeah, yeah, let me, let me spend some time thinking about what it is I've been doing <laughs> and, like, and, and, and how I would articulate that in, in a more intellectual kind of philosophical way 
um, rather than you know the way that I've been doing, which is living it in the world. Um, and and it, it was an incredibly enriching experience for me to take the time to think that through as an activist. And it's benefited me as someone who continues to to do that kind of activist work on campus that um, I. Uh, I can now articulate very clearly what it is that I'm going for. Um, you know, I have some uh, greater kind of clarity and authority to speak um, as someone who has some you know, kind of academic expertise in this area as well. Um, and so it's been useful for me personally. And also I think, you know, for the, the campus more generally, I hope as I, you know, contribute that in the various ways, in various kinds of service that I've rendered. So, um, you know, uh, that's one of the goals, I think, of the provocation series, um, and I'm I'm grateful to to the editors, um, Marco Abel and Rolling Picture, uh, for inviting me to to write this book and to think about this more deeply than I had been doing. Um, uh, and I think it's uh, a good thing to remember that those two things aren't opposed; they go hand in hand. Um, that you know, activism can lead to this kind of deep theoretical thought, and then that theoretical thought can help provide a kind of clarity of action and direction um, to the activism that you do. Thank you so much, Dr. Schleck, for your time. Dirty Knowledge, Academic Freedom in the Age of Neoliberalism is available on the University of Nebraska Press website and also the Provocations website. It was released on January 1st. It's available in both paperback and Kindle versions. The Kindle version is $15, paperback is 20. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Schleck. Any final notes? Uh, no, I just want to uh, thank you again for the invitation and the ability to, to talk about this. Um, I, I hope it's of interest to uh, everyone that's listening to the podcast. And I'll say that, you know, this is my, my first opportunity to talk about that. And it seems appropriate to me that uh, talking about it uh, with the Daily Nebraskan and uh, UNL students is, is the right way to start. So thanks again for that. Uh, thank you so much.